We were gone for one month, Avery working and I uh, sipping rakia and pilsners across Eastern Europe. And somehow we went from discussing the separation of child migrants and preventing nuclear war to banning straws and debating 3D printers. That's right. If possible, July dug us even deeper into the trenches of inanity. Well, at least we're back. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth. This is the political pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. After a transcontinental heat wave that seems to have broken everyone's brains, you'll need it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast for our hopefully regular scheduled programming as per usual. Now that the craziness, craziness sorry, of summer is over, Tiana, how about you kick it off with what we're drinking since today's drink idea was inspired by your summer escapades? So uh, we are having Clover, Clover Club cocktails. That's not a time Say that history. 10 times fast. Exactly. And... Uh, uh, the cocktail itself is not significant with the name of the game today. It is from uh, Pennsylvania, and that's really all you need to know about it. But the liquor we are using is uh, straight from Serbia, where I just came from. So I bring this up because, as I'm hoping you all kept track of, Trump had some choice words to say about NATO and Eastern European countries on Tucker Carlson while we were away. Uh, basically insinuating that if Montenegro and Russia came to heads, that NATO involvement would be a bad thing, even though it would be necessary. And while Trump's comments were obviously wrong, because our Eastern European allies have always been our allies, the media certainly did whitewash what uh, NATO has done for Eastern European countries, specifically in Serbia, which was once a part of the former Yugoslavia uh, there was a over-month-long bombing campaign by NATO in 1999 where hundreds of civilians were killed, and Amnesty International still considers um, actual war crimes against NATO. So just, uh, you know, on that light note, just a reminder that while Trump was obviously wrong, NATO has not always been a friend to our Eastern European allies. So on that note, let's... Uh, Dig in to, uh, have we ever discussed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? We have not had the privilege to. Uh, so today on the podcast, we will be talking about Medicare for All. And given that we're kind of heading into hardcore midterm territory, moving closer and closer to November and rounding out the summer primary season, I know Kansas has a big primary for um, their state next, I believe it's Tuesday. August I think 7th? also Missouri as well. Or next Monday, Our friend right? Austin Peterson, friend of the podcast. Um, so yeah, a lot of candidates we see are running on this kind of Medicare for All platform, obviously on the left, um, moving the Democratic Party further left. So that's our segment, kind of our A block for the show today. Uh, then we'll be talking about Trump's foreign policy indiscretions, I guess I'm choosing to call them. Is the word foreign policy, is that the correct term? I don't even know if it's considered foreign policy at the moment. And then lastly, 3D printer guns, because of course that would come up in the age of technology and madness and craziness that we're in these days. So, Tiana, how about you take it away with Medicare for All? What are your thoughts on this as a platform idea? Um, Yeah. So, what has recently hit the news was the fact that the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, which tends to be more libertarian-leaning, just came out with a study that valued the cost of Bernie Sanders' act, 
which is Medicare for All, or M for A, as you might see it written out. So Sanders and his office have refused to actually do the budgeting for it. So the Mercatus Institute, um, or the Mercatus Center, recently just put out a study yesterday which found that over the course of 10 years, assuming that it'd be implemented in 2022, Medicare for All would add approximately $32.6 trillion to the federal budget over the next 10 years. Now, before everyone starts screaming and moaning about the fact that the, that the study was funded in part by the Koch brothers, uh, might I add that it wasn't just Koch money that funded the Urban Institute, which found almost the exact same value for um, Sanders' plan. The reason why I believe right now the Mercatus Center study is being cited so much is simply because we're heading into midterm territory, and you now have not only Bernie, who's been beating this drum for the past quarter century, but also you have people who have been in the news like Ocasio-Cortez, you have Elizabeth Warren, um, all Kamala Harris, I believe, also all people coming out and now in favor of single payer or Medicare for all. So, Avery, you're the liberal. You tell me, thirty two point six trillion dollars. Is this first? I want to start off with: Is this a smart thing for Democrats to be running on? Well, I also want to kind of address some of the points that you brought up uh, there. So, obviously, adding. trillion to the deficit, not a good thing. However, this is being such, this is such a highly touted statistic because, of course, so many Democrats, even Democrats that aren't progressives, are running on this Medicare for All platform, which sounds great. Of course, you know, if you can have your health care paid for by the government, why not, right? So then, on the reverse side of that, you have to have Republicans finding a way to be able to knock that down and say, hey, to their voters or to potential voters, this is why that's not good. And that's what we're seeing come to play here. Obviously, I'm not in favor of something that adds that much to the deficit. But what I do find a little bit hypocritical from the Republican point of view is when you're talking about how awful this health care plan would be by adding money to the deficit and then you approved a tax bill that is, you know, we're on, the projection came out last week that it will add, it will bring the deficit to $1.1 trillion by 2019. So I'm just saying, if we're, if we're getting into the deficit discussion, I don't know on either side how much merit there is in, in, on both arguments, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, because both parties are guilty of adding to the deficit in some way and not being as fiscally responsible as you could be. Um, however, regardless, that all set aside, I'm very skeptical, especially as a Democrat, as someone who's actually from a leftist country, from a country in which we have um, Medicare for all. I'm Canadian originally. And so... From coming from a country and seeing how that works in our system there and seeing how that is paid for, I and, and then living in the States now for four years and understanding having to, you know, buy my own health insurance here and navigating these waters in this American healthcare system, I've experienced kind of both ends of the spectrum. And I do prefer the Canadian system. However, that fits for Canada. And I think there are so many things in America that makes the system completely unique to anywhere else in the world, um, and that makes it not favorable to being able to pass legislation that would actually make it work both financially, 
Um, and just in terms of a legislative measure making it work uh, for American citizens, which is frustrating, of course, but that's the reality that we're living in. So if Democratic politicians are running on, you know, a pretty much futile agenda, I really don't know how much headway they're going to make with that, because I don't believe it's a promise that they can deliver on. Would I like it to be a promise they could deliver on? Sure, but that's a different discussion. Given the facts, given even the Constitution of America and American ideals, I don't think it's going to happen, and that's for two reasons. One, on the whole, Americans don't actually want this. America as a country is a very individualist country, and that goes back to the writings of the Constitution, goes back to kind of this libertarian mindset that even, you know, moderate Democrats in America have, to a certain extent, Americans value freedom. And what most countries value in freedom may be different from what the American ideology is in that freedom to choose however you, how you want your money spent at all costs, freedom to have lower taxes, whatever that may be. And the other fact is that there are way too many interest groups in the states that simply do not want this. I know in the legislative battle over the content of the ACA in 2009, for example, there was $1.2 billion spent in lobbying for that alone. So with big pharma in the states, all of that, this is just something that's not going to happen. I think the democratic agenda needs to be something where you're chipping away at certain things that make it easier for people to have health insurance. But this Medicare for all, I'd like to see something more realistic, I guess I would say. So weirdly, I want to just respond first to a point that I think was more of an aside than anything. Both of the major parties love desserts. You know, Republicans love issuing tax cuts. Democrats love issuing free stuff. The main reason why I primarily identified as a libertarian when I was younger as opposed to a Republican was simply because I'm a fan of meat and potatoes. I'm a fan of entitlement reform. I'm a fan of things that make systems viable in the long term. And it's true that, I mean, both of the major, both of the Republican presidents in my lifetime, Bush and Trump alike, have issued a lot of dessert and not enough meat and potatoes. Tax cuts are great. They stimulate the economy and that in itself shrinks deficits in a way. However, you do need to battle entitlement reform, which hopefully Trump will do. I don't know how hopeful I am about it, but hopefully he will do that. So with regards to um, the viability of this, so the major issue at hand here, you have places like Jacobin and like Vox saying, oh, if you divide the $32.6 trillion by 10 years, and if you compare it to the annual spending that America as a whole already does on health care, technically the Medicare for all budget is cheaper. So there are two main questions here. One, would it actually be cheaper in practice? And two, how would you pay for that if then taxpayers were, were supposed to pay for that? So with regards to one, the writers of the study themselves admit that this is an extremely conservative estimate because, I quote, they assume the legislation achieves its sponsor's goals of dramatically reducing payments to health providers in addition to substantially reducing drug prices and administrative costs. So within, like, the depths of the study, which is not terribly long, and I urge you all to actually read it for yourselves, they were noting how with Medicare for All, reimbursement rates to hospitals, healthcare providers would be uh, 40% less than um, 
than those paid by private insurance. And that would lead to a massive amount of saving money. However, they also attribute uh, saving money to lowering administrative costs, to which I say, go visit the DMV and tell me how well the government does uh, administrative efficiency. So I bring that up simply because there will be a breaking point of suppliers entering the industry. Sure, the government can be the one to arrange the payment model, and they can make it so a legally taxpayer money, no matter what, goes to fund um, taxpayer health care. But if doctors begin to make less and less income, if if the innovation that has always gone into American health care lacks an incentive model, and I'll get to R&D in a second, then you have artificially inflated demand with very little responsiveness um, to price. So you don't have the influx of supply that you need. So I have no problem having conversations about what the government could do to make healthcare more available by removing regulations, by increasing price transparency, but something like this where you just automatically and artificially induce demand is not a solution for inducing supply. And this is exactly what Obamacare did. It used the individual mandate to artificially induce demand, and it provided no increased incentive to induce supply. And that is the fun... To me, it shows that when the study is being conservative, that's sort of what they're representing. They're representing there will be increased costs, and when there are not increased costs, you're going to see actual healthcare providers, because mind you, insurance companies are not the healthcare providers. They are the middlemen. You will see an exodus from the market. And that, to me, is the concerning thing. And whenever everyone always brings up, Canada is a little bit different, but when people bring up countries like Norway or countries like Sweden, which remember, these are extremely small, ethnically homogenous and culturally homogenous populations that where the health problems are quite similar, whereas America is vast and diverse, and that is obviously what makes us great, but that also means that treating our health care is a lot different a beast. Yeah, I agree with you to an extent there. So with the model that the U.S. would have to function under to achieve Medicare for all, yes, given even the more liberal studies, it would be more expensive per capita. Um, however, the U.S. spends you know, the most on healthcare of any, you know, first world country in, in the world. And so if you compare that to the Canadian numbers under the Canadian system, the U.S. spends, and this is, uh, these are 2006 numbers, because I guess, you know, it's probably tough to generate, but probably shouldn't be too far off now, but forewarning. So in 2006, the per capita spending for healthcare in Canada was, and this is in U.S. dollars, $3,678. Now, compare that to the U.S. spending per capita um, in the United States, which was $6,714. So it's quite a stark difference. So people view Medicare for all as being such a costly system, especially on the government, where when done properly and when able to execute in an efficient manner, it actually becomes far less expensive. And that's because of a lot of factors. But those factors that exist are not ones that exist in the states. For instance, Canada, who buys most of their pharmaceutical products from the states, from big companies like Pfizer, as a country, the federal government negotiates drug prices with suppliers 
to get those down to a cost and a contract in which they're okay buying them at. So in that case, Canada is buying drugs at a discounted rate, which then reduces their administrative costs. However, in the States, with Big Pharma, with these interest groups, with the U.S. being, as you said, with having this incentive to constantly innovate and create and pump out products, I just don't believe that to be a reality. And I think when you have, you know, air quotes, socialized medicine in other countries, or when you have government-funded medicine and healthcare in other countries, I think in a lot of ways that's a result of the U.S. not having it because all those countries are buying so much of their pharmaceutical products from the U.S. who has that kind of incentivized system. I wish it was possible in the U.S., but I don't necessarily believe that to be true. I think the government could provide tax incentives in terms of tax cuts, or sorry, uh, tax credits for those who are insured, incentivizing people to get insurance and helping them that way. But I think this isn't going to be achieved with a broad sweeping stroke because of the different dynamics that are at play in the U.S. Okay, but also, though, there is the matter of the fact that other countries directly reap the benefits of America's research and development into healthcare. That's what I'm saying. And so it's... It's the same way when, and this is something I encountered in Europe a lot, I found a lot of people would decry how much money we spend on our military. <laughs> and every single country I visited, because I was in Europe, every single one of these countries were one of our allies. And all I could think to myself was I just tried to sort of bite my tongue because I'm not going to get into it with some cab driver that I'm spending way too much money on where I could be spending way less, day at Uber, but again, Europe. Um... It, is the fact that when you're close allies with a world power, you reap some benefits. And the benefits here in the healthcare discussion being R&D into cancer treatments. There's a reason why people ship their children out here when they have some sort of extremely rare disease, you know? There's a reason why for the last, I mean, for most of modern medical history, Everything has been invented here, you know? So, yes, it would be, theoretically, you could save $2 trillion over the course of 10 years, over the course of 10 years, explicitly, based on extremely conservative projections. But that ignores the fact that 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 $32.6 trillion is 281 times the private sector's annual medical R&D investment. It is 867 times the federal government's annual medical R&D investment. So if we're spending all that money that would otherwise be on developing treatment that essentially is the scientific equivalent of economic growth, but in this case for medicine, then we're really losing out. And I think that it's, it's fine to acknowledge the actual debate here, which is, Would you rather everyone have some degree of care or would you rather have a few people maybe not have the best care, but the experimental care and all of the research being poured in for future generations? I don't necessarily know if it's that trade-off, but I think where this gets lost and to bring it back to kind of the original reason that incited this conversation that we're having right now in regards to campaign messaging is... I think in both parties, you're seeing people 
go to extremes to try to appeal to an increasingly polarized voter base. Whereas I think as politicians, people should be prescribing um, policy agendas that are attainable and that make sense. And this isn't advocating for a moderate platform, but this is advocating for a realistic one. And so instead of on the democratic side of things, people saying, abolish ICE and Medicare for all, because both of those are kind of turning into the same thing. And I think Bernie Sanders has really brought the Democratic Party way far left, given the success that he had in the federal election primaries, um, and has really forced a lot of Democrats to have to kind of include his agendas along with theirs to gain his progressive voters. And then on the Republican side of things, you're seeing full-on the opposite side of things. We need to have zero-tolerance immigration policy, whatever it may be. But I think if Democrats, instead of saying abolish ICE, instead of saying Medicare for all, and said, hey, we want to make healthcare more achievable for you, more accessible healthcare, not Medicare for all, more accessible healthcare, and not abolish ICE, but compassionate immigration reform. That, I think, will appeal to a lot more voters. I think on the left, there's only so many people on the left, but there's a lot of people in the middle. There's a lot of people who have no political affiliation or who are independents who you can apply to with reason. And I'd like to see both parties move towards that more reasonable argument. I think it's less of if Medicare for all, if we should be saying that, but if it's even achievable, because then everyone's just a lying politician. No, and then there's so many other things that I think that... You could have, no, the Bernie Sanders and the Alexandrias of the world won't necessarily be that keen on. But I think that there are tons of Democrats from red states who should be willing to break with the orthodoxy of the far leftism that's sort of taken over the party to to tackle things that would make healthcare cheaper for everyone, to discuss occupational licensing reform and discuss what things can be outsourced to nurse practitioners, um, to people who don't necessarily have MDs. Also, discussing things like like the Stark laws that prevent physicians from referring to anyone who has uh, direct... It's The laws are complicated, but um, it would base... It, it, it's a number of regulations that I believe Senator Orrin Hatch has been trying to repeal um, that prevent... I'm going to mess this up, but it's, it's a regulation... Um, so that way physicians cannot refer to hospitals or entities that they have financial benefit from or that anyone they're related to gets financial benefit from. Price transparency, another thing, because the people who set the prices are hospitals and insurers. It's not the actual physician. If you get concierge care, a physician can tell you exactly how much a lab will charge for a certain lab test or for a certain blood test. When you go to the hospital and when it's when it's between your insurance company, you and the hospital dueling about how to price admission, that's when you get, like, the cases of stories where people go into the hospital, ultimately get a bandage and a blood test, and it costs $2,000 out of pocket. And then they're living in debt, and it creates all those additional problems. Yeah, so I completely agree. So I'm just saying, like, with regards to healthcare, which is obviously a massive issue, because it is still, we spend a fifth of our GDP on it. Just the fact that we aren't discussing more viable options, things that we can get 60 votes on, just goes to show how partisan and I don't know. Well, we're almost at a time now where if you are one of the few and far between senators or congressmen or women who 
are willing to reach across the aisle, you're vilified by people from your own party. I mean, the most recent case I can think of was actually in the state senate of Kansas. Um, state Senator uh, Ballier actually endorsed Tom Neerman over Kevin Yoder for Kansas uh, 3, the congressional district. Tom Neerman is the Democratic challenger, but he's a moderate Democrat, and Kevin Yoder is the Republican incumbent. And she said, hey, look, I see Tom as a guy who's willing to work with both sides. I agree with some of his agendas, and I'm going to vote my conscience rather than vote my party, or not vote rather, but advocate for my conscience rather than my party. And she was removed from a leadership position by other Republicans in the Kansas State Senate and has been threatened with uh, no funding for her next re-election campaign. And that shouldn't be the way it is. It shouldn't be you're with us or you're not. Um, you're, you're either in or you're out. It should be let's think about things in an educated manner and let's vote for and let's advocate for what actually works. I'd like to see the U.S. move closer to that, but... I think when you have such a polarizing leader at the helm, uh, that becomes even more difficult. Um, and speaking of him, we should probably move on to what's going on with him and the Putin bromance, as I like to call it. Oh, God. So much happened. So much happened. But I guess with regards to things of significance, um, the most shocking thing when I was gone and had very limited access to the internet because uh, my phone had an unfortunate encounter with a sink in Vienna that uh, left me reliant on my other friends' phones, and believe me, they were trying to keep me from paying attention to any of this, was the fact that Michael Cohen's attorney, because now Trump's attorney requires an attorney because he is under investigation, leaked the tape in which Cohen and Trump are allegedly discussing the AMI deal with Karen McDougal to none other than Chris Cuomo of CNN. I loved it. Ultimate backstab. But are we really rude? Are you really rooting for Michael Cohn here? My God. I mean, I'm, I'm rooting for CNN. You're rooting for, you're, <laughs> I'm rooting for no one. I'm rooting for the truth. I just want the truth to come out in the rightful way. But, um, I just can't believe of all places, but you know what? Yeah. Um, uh, maybe, Fox News, who knows, he could have proposed it to Fox News, and they didn't want to touch it because they do have a pretty great unmitigated um, relationship with the president. I mean, he picks them first when asking questions at any speaking engagement and does personal interviews with them. So I wouldn't be surprised if CNN wasn't the first choice. Um, And then obviously you don't want to go to MSNBC if you're Cohen, so that kind of made sense to me. I don't know, but anyway, I guess... So, Trump Russia is the gift that keeps on giving, or is the existential crisis, depending on or the how ticking you look time at it. bomb, depending. Yeah. So, the interesting thing is that Trump's polling numbers have remained almost the same. So, people have a lot of faith in the economy. From a statistical perspective, a lot of people give Trump credence for that. Trump is still viewed as just honest in the polls. He is still has a he has a unfavor his favorability is underwater. But despite all the chaos of the last two months, his numbers have been solid. His num he stayed above forty. I wouldn't for- call them solid. I'd call them steady. Okay, fair, steady. But steady won him the presidency. He didn't win the presidency with. 
plus 50. If he didn't, you know, like, he won the presidency at, what, 40% approval rating? Yeah, and I think what everyone keeps looking at with with all these scandals or fiascos or indiscretions, whatever they may be, whatever shoes keep dropping in the media, uh, everyone's looking at these, and especially the never-Trumpers are, and and the Democrats are looking at these as, oh, this is finally going to be the thing that tanks him and loses uh, the country's trust in the government and all of these things. But I think what we're coming to, for some, the unfortunate reality is that Trump's approval ratings under 40%, like at 40%, they're untouchable. So, I mean, there's the saying, I don't know who said it, but he could shoot someone in the face in broad daylight. It's Fifth Avenue. And, and, his supporters still wouldn't care, and, and that rings very true, I think, given every scandal that's come out about the president and, and every scandida- scandal that came out about Trump as a candidate for president and how that did not cause him to falter, really, in any regard, that means that, I think, regardless of anything, what we're seeing is that 40% of this country will always love Trump no matter what he does. So now we're working within a small margin to you know, for some, hopefully beat him in 2020 and um, going into the midterms to hopefully flip some seats in the Senate and in the House. Uh, But I think that we need to stop looking at these to be able to be bombshell stories because I think that his base is probably the strongest base that any president has ever had and may ever will have. His base are just those crazy fans that Kanye West has or that Taylor Swift has or Nicki Minaj. They're not going anywhere despite what they do. They're loyal followers. I mean, okay, you do point out something important, and that is that Trump has cultivated his personal loyalties very well. And honestly, I'm not even going to fault him for that because— I mean, we had someone like Obama who really did try and capitalize on his celebrity. So it makes sense that this would be, like, the natural progression. But with regards to the Fifth Avenue principle, it extends so much further than this when it comes to Trump's re-election or attempt to be re-elected. So the fact that the Fifth Avenue principle does, I think, exist from a statistical perspective in the sense that Trump, it's very hard for Trump to piss off his own base. You have you have people like Ann Coulter or even Laura Ingram who are willing to say, Trump hasn't built the wall, he has to build the wall in order for us to regain our support. But you have a lot of people who will go from being free trade absolutists to tariff, tariff, tariff overnight just based on what Trump says. But when it comes to winning re-election, the re-election rates for, for presidents in the last hundred years are extraordinarily high. And it's simply because the moral quandaries of voting for someone who you think is a bad person sort of dissipate when it comes to a re-election. Simply because if you were to cast your ballot for Trump in if you were to cast your ballot for Trump in 2016, if you bit the bullet and if you said, here's someone credibly accused of sexual assault, here's someone who is overtly sympathetic to our foreign adversaries. But you know what? Hillary Clinton is the worst. And I believe that Trump believes in what it means to be an American. If you already bit that bullet, you'll do it again. If you didn't bite that bullet, and if you're someone who's in the middle and if you thought Trump is garish and I don't like his rhetoric and, but you know what? The tax cuts are okay. And I was told that he was going to start nuclear war. And I was told that 
he was literally Hitler. And so far, none of these things have manifested themselves to be true. And the only thing that I personally, Tiana, was... I mean, I was concerned about a number of things, but the number one thing I was extremely scared of was the trade war. And the fact is that's already sort of started and no one else really cares. I know I still care. And that's something that for me is an important issue when it comes to voting. But a lot of people just don't care. Yeah, well, I mean, to relate this even to what we were talking about earlier is all of those facts that you just mentioned, Tiana, make me beat my head against the wall and say, okay, where is the Democratic candidate that is the moderate voice that the party's pushing forward as their candidate in 2020 because instead we are seeing people that are as far left as this country has ever been and don't get me wrong I don't even necessarily identify as a, as a moderate democrat I identify on a lot of issues farther left but when I'm thinking about from a strategic perspective how to be able to appeal to voters and what is the winning strategy what the Democratic Party is doing right now is not the winning strategy because there are so many people who, as Tiana said, bit the bullet, held their tongues, voted for Trump, did not agree with his morality, but voted for him based on the Supreme Court or based on, you know, tax incentives or whatever they thought he could deliver on. What if they had the candidate that was morally good and also had some policies that they got along with i think then you'd see a lot more votes shifting in democratic favor but if things go the way they are no i absolutely see trump being a two-term president and so that's why i think that there are people with a lot more knowledge of the Mueller investigation than me who say that it is very dire for trump and when i see the smoking gun i will believe it I'm not rooting for anyone's team. This isn't, these aren't sports. I'm rooting for policies and for principles. Right now, I see no evidence that Trump himself is directly guilty of conspiracy to collude. If that ever comes out, of course, 100%, I'll be in favor of impeachment. That being said, it's, in my opinion, just bad politics for the Democrats to hang so much on, on the Mueller investigation. They are running against rather than running for something. And when they do run for something, it's they tout out leftist Tommy, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, onto Comedy Central to not even be able to describe how she'd fund her own policies. And so with the Mueller investigation, yes, it is deeply serious and it must continue to go on simply because we need to investigate foreign adversaries interfering in our elections, which any patriot should care about. But realistically, the only thing that looks like it might even remotely stick, if the Michael Cohen tape is true, then it seems like Trump made a campaign finance violation. Who cares? We already bought the horse. We know he had affairs. We know he silenced people about those affairs. The campaign finance violations... Name me one candidate for president who's won in the last 20 years who hasn't committed a campaign finance violation. Well, also the thing, too, even at a smaller level, level as at a gubernatorial level or Senate or congressional level, um, campaign finance violations happen all the time. I mean, we've actually seen them happen to quite a few candidates running for Congress um, in this upcoming election cycle. And all that re- that results in is a fine. Um, I don't know what the specific protocol Impeach. would be at the federal level and given, 
you know, the dollar amounts at stake and how it was obviously for a presidential election, that may be different. But what I'm saying is at the lower level, it's not a big deal. It doesn't even take someone's campaign most often. And it's pretty much a slap on the wrist, especially if you're a well-funded candidate. Uh, so again, I can't, I don't think people should be putting all their eggs in this basket. I think Democrats need to be far more focused on the policies that they are putting out there and running a good race and everything from a strategic point of view. And I think you phrased it perfectly. They need to be running for something and not against something. Uh, So we'll see if that happens. I think if that does, it'll be a very great unifying factor in a country that is frankly not unified right now. So only adding actually to the de-unification of the country is gun laws. That's probably one of the most polarizing issues and what brings us into the 3D printer guns that may be coming out as early as tomorrow on the internet, uh, given recent court rulings. So this is another case of, God, I'm going to sound, I sound like such a stereotype, but it is the media more or less overblowing something that is fairly commonplace to sensationalize something as it relates to Trump. So... This case regards a company called Defense Distributed, uh, which is owned by um, Cody Wilson, who is a 3D gun creator. He sued the federal government for being forced to take down his downloadable 3D guns about five years ago. And just recently, the Trump administration essentially settled with him. So... My understanding of where the left takes grievance with this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is they believe that Trump just made it legal to create undetectable firearms via 3D printers. Now, gun blueprints have been distributed since the beginning of this country. Obviously, the internet has made them easier. But gun blueprints are not the issue. People have been, on an individual level, been making guns since the beginning of this country. However, it is illegal to commercially distribute undetectable firearms. Um, and I believe that it's also illegal to take some, like a gun that has no metal in it through TSA police screenings or whatnot. So, Avery, as, as our designated liberal and as our podcast designated gun expert, because I am from Los Angeles, so uh, tell me, what is your take on this? So... What I take issue with this on, and I think is what a lot of people, I'm not even going to make this partisan, I think just a lot of people who are for safe gun laws, and not even, you know, gun reform, but just for people operating firearms safely and using them in the correct manner, is that this is an accessibility issue. Um, You know, in the States now, someone who wants to go purchase a gun, you have to be a certain age, you have to to a certain extent, go through procedures that vet you, although a lot of people advocate for them to be stronger. But at least there is a certain procedure in place. With this, you don't have to be a certain age to have a 3D printer. Obviously, you have to have a certain amount of money or you have to have access to one. But other than that, there are essentially no barriers to you being able to download this, um, these blueprints, and create this weapon. I think for investigating murders and crimes. Um, Not being able to trace the firearm is deeply troubling. Um, 
And I think in terms of um, going through metal detectors, everything like that, this creates an overall security issue and it's definitely an accessibility issue because this is bringing firearms into people's homes with no government check on it. And I understand, you know, the right to bear arms in the Constitution, whatever, and censorship laws regarding these blueprints, all of that. But at the end of the day, laws have evolved with technology. That's why we see so many laws, even in terms of like net neutrality, all of that. Laws evolve, and I think one needs to evolve to adapt to addressing this specific issue with firearms. I think this is separate from the overall gun control issue, um, March for Our Lives, the Parkland survivors, all of that. But this is about adapting to a new technology and creating a law that regulates that, just as all firearms are right now. But this fundamentally is a speech issue because the Undetectable Firearms Act is still in place. It's still, if you have a fully plastic gun, you cannot bring it onto a plane. But when the Obama administration took this case against the company, they were arguing that it's that the blueprints, the fact that you could get them internationally, and that obviously this was sort of a unique company, um, that because it was internationally, it was a it was a violation of the international traffic and arms regulations. I think the Obama administration was probably trying to use any caveat they could to try to stop this based on, you know, probably the argument that I just provided, though. Yeah, but, but again, it comes down to... We can still enforce gun control laws about use and about ownership without, without trying this, I think, sort of pointless path of regulating blueprints on the internet. I mean, what is the logical what is the logical conclusion of that? How do you think that we regulate that then? I don't I don't think we I don't think we regulate the blueprints. I don't think we regulate the blueprints. I think that if if someone is found or reported to have a gun when they should not because they have a severe when they have a debilitating mental health issue or because they have a domestic violence conviction, this is one where I am a big fan of the gun violence restraining order. That I fully support. I think that the government should take a more active role in taking guns away from people who should not have them rather than preventing people who could have them. I think it might have to be something where you apply to be able to get the blueprint, where it's strictly regulated in that regard. I'm not saying that these blueprints shouldn't exist. I think, obviously, 3D printing is an amazing technology. And from this person's perspective, his ability to design a blueprint that can create a gun, sure, that's a great feat for that person and that individual. And in terms of freedom of speech, in terms of liberty, he should be able to profit off of that idea. Sure, if, if you want to make that argument, that's fine. But I think that there shouldn't be unmitigated access to this, just like you can download anything you want from the internet as it is today. I think because of what this can create, there needs to be some sort of system in place. And maybe that means you have to download, in order to download a file from this website, you have to provide your information to pass a background check and provide um confirmation of your photo ID so that they know that you are of age, something like that. But I just don't think there can be this unmitigated access, and that's a territory that needs to be navigated. I just think that it's deeply unrealistic to think that we can ban blueprints from the internet. This isn't child pornography. But knowing the consequences that this could have, I mean, this is something that's creating a gun. So then if you don't ban the blueprints, you can't really ban the 3D printers. 
I, I just like a catch-22. So either way, it results in the access to firearms for essentially anyone without any checks. I mean, I just think that, that the Obama administration's original angle, which is about international regulations, was a lot more watertight than something that could be construed as a massive violation of the First Amendment. It's just... But my bigger grievance with the way the story is being presented is that it has something to do with the nefarious goals of the Trump administration. When it's not, it has to do with some fringe issue that I'm sure Trump didn't even care about, especially considering the fact that he tweeted about it this morning that there must be regulations with regards to 3D-printed guns. Well, I would imagine even the NRA isn't really um, in favor of this because— The NRA—I mean, the NRA backed it. They say—I mean, they the NRA said that, that gun laws surrounding 3D-printed 3D printed guns absolutely should be enforced. Trump is the one who said that they shouldn't be around at all, proving that Trump often says the person who last the opinion of the person who last spoke to him. But I I I just think it's funny everything gets spun into this is Trump's fault. This is what Trump did this time. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if this isn't the last thing that we hear about this case. I think obviously I think the blueprints as per the government decision go live tomorrow, Wednesday. Um But I won't be surprised if some additional regulations come into play. Uh, So we'll see what happens there. I mean, obviously, you know my take. Uh, I think just the safer we can be, the better. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't have access to these things, but I'm saying we need to understand the consequences of this unmitigated access. Um, But on that note... I think we will be back on our scheduled programming. We are so happy to be back, uh, both Tiana and I, in the same place here in L.A. Um, And as always, guys, uh, leave us with any comments, questions, concerns, um, anything you'd like to see content-wise from us. You can always DM us on Twitter, at Tiana the First or at Avery Hogarth. And, of course, contact us through our website as well um, and find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thank you. Thank you.